Today we are continuing our series, Kiss the Sun, with a message entitled, When the Wicked Fail. And this message is part one of a two-part message, although both of these messages are pretty self-contained. So if you miss next week, it's not the end of the world. I'll just cry for a little bit. Um, But next week we'll continue by looking at Psalm 10, When the Wicked Prevail. These two psalms, 9 and 10, are separated in our English Bibles and in most translations, various languages. Uh, But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in the Latin Vulgate, they were combined into one psalm and in some of the earlier manuscripts. The structure of our psalm, uh, 9, and Psalm 10, when it's combined, forms an acrostic poem, meaning that each section begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. Uh, this one is more of a modified acrostic because it, is, uh, it has omitted a couple Hebrew letters. And just because you're going to need to know this at some point in your life, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew language. Just tuck that away for random, useless knowledge. Uh, but this helps us, knowing that it is an acrostic poem when combined, it, it actually helps us to see that these two psalms are indeed linked together. But in this message, we're going to look at three things, the thankful heart, the wicked nations, and the righteous judge. From the text, I believe we'll also be able to pull some promises out that we can hold to for our future, both in this life and the life to come. So let's read Psalm 9, and it is um, 20 verses. It's a, a lengthier one compared to some of the ones we've read so far. To the choir master, according to Muth Leben, And you guys have no idea if I pronounced that right or wrong. A psalm of David. I say that because I don't think any of us know whether that's pronounced right or wrong. (laughs) I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up, sorry, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of your daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higayon? Another one of those, not quite sure the pronunciation. Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord, 
Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for how we can be encouraged uh, by these words written many years ago. I ask that in them we would see a clear uh, vision of Christ. And that we would be encouraged in your gospel, built up and edified. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the thankful heart. Now, this psalm begins with a superscript, um, and this is the easy part of that, a psalm of David. So David wrote this. But next we have a bit of a challenge. The ESV includes this transliteration of the word mathleben, which is an interesting phrase. Uh, Some translations actually translate this out as the death of the sun. Um, This is likely a musical direction of some sort for the choir master as it says, to the choir master. Um, It's probably a melody that would accompany this psalm. But I don't think it's something we need to spend a whole lot of time dissecting. Um, We just don't have the full understanding of what this means. It it very well could be a messianic meaning to it, um, but a lot of scholars feel that that's unlikely. They feel that it could be referencing... um, an enemy's son that was possibly killed in battle or something like that. We just don't know. But um, about the best we can come up with is that this is some kind of musical direction because a lot of these psalms would have been put to music and sung and, and used in worship. So, Nate, according to uh, Muthla Ben, will you accompany <laughs> That was not planned. He's, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. No. But in these first two verses, David opens this psalm and prays to God for all the wonderful deeds that God has done. And there's this interesting phrase right at the top, I will give thanks to the Lord, or Yahweh, with my whole heart. I don't know about you, but I've always struggled when I come to this phrase, with my whole heart. We see it in other places, especially in Psalm 119, where I think it's, I think David uses it like four or five times. Simply, it means that uh, David's praise isn't just originating from just his lips or something like that. In biblical writings, the heart was considered the center of a person, not simply their emotions, but the center of who they are. So our emotions uh, were seen as emerging from that center. So David's confidence, hope, assurance, and praise all arise from the center of his being. But I have to be honest, my heart doesn't always feel like this, like an overflowing spring. And I think we can safely say that David's heart didn't always feel like this either. So don't read this in fear or trepidation like you or me. Uh, we, we may not always feel this. The flesh is weak, and we won't perfectly do this. We won't. But Jesus has. He has faithfully and wholeheartedly loved the Father and us as well. He has loved us with that steadfast, loyal love that we've spoken about before. He is Yahweh and is fully committed to his people. And we've heard a lot about that name over the last few weeks, but I just want to reiterate that this covenant name of God, Yahweh, you'll usually see it in our English translations Um, as the capitalized Lord, um, where all four of the letters are capitalized. 
This is Yahweh. Simply the I am. So where we are weak and where we fall woefully short, God is the I am. While I may not always be able to say with my whole heart, Jesus, who declared himself the I am, has. He has loved me with his whole heart, and he has loved the Father with his whole heart. And because he loved me first and has given me his Holy Spirit and a new heart, I'm now enabled to love the Lord. I'm now able to love God. But David is thankful. He's full of praise. And his praise in this psalm is a response to past victories, but also to future rescue. We see that a lot in in David's writings. He's looking towards rescue. It's coming, but he's also looking to God's past mercies in his life. The heart of praise and thanksgiving is what frames the rest of this psalm. In some ways, this psalm has been called a lament, Um, especially when you do combine it with Psalm 10. Overall, there's a, a theme of lament. But in Psalm 9, there's also a lot of speak of victory. Because of this tone of victory in this, ta- this psalm over national enemies, it's often been used in Israel's past um, in various times when the people of Israel were facing great national distress. You know, we mentioned in the first week that the book of Psalms began to be compiled around the time of the Babylonian captivity. Well, during the Babylonian captivity, this psalm would have been of great encouragement to those people. During, during the Maccabean Revolt um, and other times in Israel's history, the people could identify with the psalmist in regard to the enemies that they faced, these national enemies. Well, let's unpack this psalm a little bit more as we look at the wicked nations in verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemies came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. So verse 3 really begins to elaborate on what it is that is in David's mind that he's so grateful for. It's because of these past victories over his enemies and God's past mercies in his life that he's so confident of future victory. He's seen God work time and time again in his life as uh, enabled by God, he's defeated these enemies. He's defeated real historic enemies, some real nations. David defeated the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians of Zobah, the Arameans of Damascus, the Edomites, and the Ammonites. And as we know, David also defeated some of his own people who turned uh, to enemies, including his own son Absalom, who revolted against him. So we know that God has often given victory to David over his enemies, yet in all that we've seen in the Psalms before this one, David has really focused primarily on these individual personal um, enemies in his life. You know, maybe they were political enemies, or Saul who chased him, or his son Absalom. These weren't nations from without. These were people from within. But here in this psalm, uh, he's really directing his attention towards national enemies of, of Israel. As we read in verses 3 through 6, we see David's confidence in God. Look what uh, he says here in some of these verses. In verse 3, they stumble and perish before your presence. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, and you have blotted out their name forever and ever. 
Verse 6, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities he rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Some scholars have noted that the past tense of David's writing here uh, could be reciting of past victories, while others believe uh, it to be the confidence that David has looking towards a definite future victory, that he's looking at some current enemies that he was facing and describing their future defeat as though it had already happened, that he was that confident about what God was about to do. And maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe, maybe David was facing uh, the Syrians of Zobah at the time of this writing and was looking back at some of the defeats of some of these enemy nations and just remembering what God has done and looking forward confidently to the future defeat that was coming. But for us today, we do see that there are enemies and wickedness all around us. The world is full of evil. And we really shouldn't be surprised or caught off guard when that evil comes to our door. It was promised to be this way. First John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world, speaking here of those who are not Christians, will hate us. And Jesus warned his disciples in John 16 of the persecution that was about to come for them. But he also left them an amazing encouragement that we can also draw encouragement from. In John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We too can look to this greater reality when we face all sorts of trials, all sorts of enemies, all sorts of wickedness in the world. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And you notice there, we kind of find ourselves in two places in that verse. First of all, in Christ, where we have peace, and in the world, where we have tribulation. Somehow, we're existing in both. So we will experience tribulation. And in the middle of tribulation, we'll have great peace because of Christ. There's also another enemy that will finally be defeated at the end. And this enemy is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, Excuse me. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, we've tasted bitterly of this recently with the death of Christina. Death, indeed, is our enemy, and the Bible calls it our final enemy. But there will be a day when Jesus returns and finally and definitively puts death to death. No more death. This future hope gives us a rock-solid assurance. There is no enemy, no wickedness, and no evil, not even death, that can withstand the power of our resurrected Savior. There will be times in our life when it appears that wickedness will win the day. 
There will be times uh, when the wickedness around us may even enjoy a short-lived triumph. We've seen this from history past. Jerusalem was destroyed, and there were believers living in the city when it was. They were scattered. And throughout church history, throughout the last 2,000 years, we've seen persecution throughout and all over the place. And we've seen wicked rulers and leaders ascend to the throne and be removed from the throne. And it will continue until that final day. This psalm, I believe, gives us that same confidence that we see that David had. That ultimately and certainly, God and righteousness will prevail. And the wicked will fail. Jesus will vanquish every enemy, and that should give us hope. What is it that David was looking at as the key to his confidence? For David, he was looking at Yahweh as a righteous judge. I want to look at here verses 7 through 9. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. It is true that thrones are most commonly used to describe ruling, but judges are also described as sitting, enthroned, in judgment. God is both the ruler and the judge, and we we see that clearly from both Psalm 9 and 10. And we'll see more about that next week, so there's the teaser. You've got to come back. You've got to hear more about Psalm 10. But verse 8 here in Psalm 9 shows us that God judges the world with righteousness. He is the righteous judge. We see in, in this psalm more of what Randy shared with us last Sunday about the transcendence and imminence of God. The ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible says this, Here we see blended the infinite greatness and wonderful gentleness of God. He sits enthroned forever and judges the world with righteousness. He is supreme in glory and might, and yet he is not aloof or uncaring. Instead, he is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. He is all-powerful, majestic, all-glorious, and at the same time, he is near and full of steadfast love. In considering these descriptions, maybe it starts to give us a better view of exactly how God is a refuge or stronghold, as he's again described in verse 9. We've used a description a lot, or maybe I've used the description a lot, of the image of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings. And I realize that not everybody has seen the movie, so I brought a picture of Helm's Deep so you could see the refuge. And this is more of an artist's rendering of it. It's not taken directly from the movie. But you can see how intimidating that is, how fortified that is. It doesn't look very gentle. In fact, it kind of looks cold, hard. But man, it sure would be a strong fortress. You think of... Uh, When we describe these things, a rocky spot. I think even uh, in various places of Scripture, it talks about the cleft of a rock. I mean, this this is firm. This is not giving way. It is grand and it is strong and it cannot be shaken. And this also describes God. 
Yet at the same time, God is also near and gentle and our father. So as our stronghold, he is both this impenetrable fortress and the gentle, loving embrace that holds us close. And when I think of Helm's Deep or other fortresses, I don't really think of that care or gentleness. I don't think of a warm embrace. But the type of refuge that God is for his children is exactly that. It is both mighty and strong, and it is gentle and kind. I don't really know how to give a good mental picture of that, but just imagine that on the outside it's this image, but on the inside it's warm and cozy and inviting. And you're held and cared for with such gentleness and tenderness. God is both at the same time. The righteous judge who will judge the wicked nations is also our father who is embracing us as his children. The wicked will feel the weight of his judgment and his wrath as they crash against him, just like the enemies crashing against this fortress. While the righteous will feel the warmth of the tender embrace of our father and will not be forgotten. And it is not a righteousness of our own. Let's look again, uh, well, we read it at the beginning, uh, but verses 10 through 14. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. As I read through those verses and as I read through them in preparation, I actually kind of just got this overwhelming sense of God's love towards us. And it's just, to me, um, reminiscent of the verse that I shared from yesterday at Christina's funeral. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says of himself, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, I want to quote from the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. In Jesus Christ, we see these marks of God in beautiful flesh and blood reality. For Christ is both a lion and a lamb. He is both supremely powerful and supremely gentle. He is a strong refuge and a tender friend. In Jesus, we see concretely the God of Psalm 9. Jesus is a stronghold for the oppressed. And he came to preach good news to the poor. So judgment on these historic nations was indeed carried out. These wicked nations met their end. They were blotted out. History doesn't remember too much about them. We look at the world today and we cry out for that same justice, demanding judgment upon the wicked. Ultimately, we can trust that judgment will come in the end for all. We will explore this a bit more as we look to uh, Psalm 10 next week. But judgment is a scary thing. To stand before a holy God is frightening. But for the Christian, judgment has already been carried out. On the cross, the sentence was carried out. Jesus bore the full outpouring of God's wrath and judgment for you. It was on your behalf and for all who would trust in Jesus. In the eyes of God, because of our union in Christ, we were in Christ when he died and rose again. So while Christ was 
bearing that judgment, that wrath that we deserve, you are safely hidden in the refuge that is Christ Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is the truer stronghold for the oppressed. There's a, I didn't bring it, I just thought of it right now. Um, maybe I should have brought it. Maybe I'll play it next week. There's a video um, that someone put together of the song, um, All I Have is Christ, I believe it is. And there's this image in that video, Jesus on the cross bearing the full wrath of God. It's depicted as fire, you know, and it's being poured out on Christ. And the camera kind of swings to the other side. And the believer in this video is taking shelter behind Christ as the full wrath of God is being borne by Christ. He's that refuge and at the same time our gentle, tender friend. David concludes this psalm in verses 17 through 20. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. So, verse 17 here confirms for the wicked nations that their end is wrath. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Verse 18 speaks of the needy and poor. And it is true that God has compassion on the needy and the oppressed, but I believe that this is pointing to something deeper. All of us are born in sin. We're all born the poor and the needy. There's not one of us who can say to God, I deserve refuge. I deserve your grace. Because of who I am or what I've done. In Matthew 5, we have a famous passage. We call it the Beatitudes. Uh, And in verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's easy to look at this and assume that Jesus is saying that those who are in poverty will receive special favor. Or maybe if I become this way, God will show me kindness. But Jesus is actually preaching the law in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've entitled it. Jesus was, in fact, the greatest teacher of the law. One of the main purposes of the law is to show us our need for Jesus. And so Jesus was using the law as it was intended to show Israel, those who were listening to him, that it's not their religious efforts or a righteousness of their own. But in fact, we all stand on the same ground as poor and needy. There's nothing that I can do to earn this. There's nothing that in me, I don't have a pedigree that would deserve God's favor. We're all born poor in spirit. We're born morally and spiritually bankrupt. I'm reminded of a clip that many of us have heard of uh, Alistair Begg speaking of the man on the middle cross in which Alistair supposes a conversation Uh, what it would have been like between uh, an angel and the thief on the cross upon his entering heaven. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but just a tiny portion. The angel asks, what what are you doing here? The thief responds, I don't know. There's a bit more back and forth. And finally, the angel asks, on what basis are you here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said I can come. This is the simplicity of the gospel. It's not your riches. It's not your merit. It's not your abilities. It's that Jesus said you could come. This invitation is open for you today. And if you've never trusted Christ, 
He has invited you to come. Believe the good news of his son dying. He was buried and resurrected for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust him. And perhaps you're a weary saint, struggling with guilt and remorse, feeling constant condemnation. Same man on the middle cross has said, you can come. Your sins are forgiven. You were needy and poor. But as David said, you will not be forgotten and you will not perish because of Jesus. The lion, the rock, the majestic one is also your refuge, your stronghold. And he has said you can come. He will not forget you. But he has forgotten your sin. Isaiah 43.25 I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. In conclusion, there are several promises that we have here that I think we can hold to. You may be surrounded by wickedness, just as David was, but Jesus is your stronghold. Second, there is hope for the future that you can cling to. In the end, justice will prevail, and the wicked will fail. And third, you will not be forgotten, but your sins have been. I want to conclude this morning just leaving you uh, with the end of next week's psalm. Psalm 10, 16 through 18 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. There may be things that deeply trouble you today. Injustice that you see in the world political corruption and failure, evil atrocities committed against the innocent. But Jesus is king, and he is our refuge. Let's pray. Father, we, first of all, we just thank you that because of your son, we've been invited to come. Thank you for such grace and mercy shown to undeserving people. People who have deserved your wrath. But Jesus has taken all of that for us. We praise you. We thank you. We give you honor and glory. Father, I ask that as we may be weighed down by afflictions and troubles and things that we see all around us as the wicked sometimes seem to prevail and the thought of the wicked failing seems like a distant thing I ask that you would encourage our hearts that you would lift us that we would look to Christ that we would see that stronghold that we would not be tossed by the waves of doubt and fear that we would see the sure foundation, the rock that we're standing on. Be with us, Lord. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.